there. It's Eric Erickson. Glad to have you with me. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. More than welcome to. I, I So I, I, I went on a little bit of a tirade yesterday. And I thought a little more about it. And I actually want to spend a little more time on that tirade. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, since I got involved in politics, I have been told repeatedly, reliably, and regularly that conservatives and Republicans, they need to abandon their fixation on social issues, cultural issues, their icky issues. They'll alienate women. They'll alienate other people. And they should give them up. Uh, and there, there have been several of these issues. One of which was gay marriage. Now, I get regularly attacked for opposing gay marriage, and I I want to state yet again for the record and clarify uh, my position on that issue because I think it's necessary for you to to understand where I come from on that issue uh, to be able to put the rest of this in package. Um, We are not a theocracy, nor do I really truly believe we were founded as a Christian nation, and I know a lot of my conservative friends grew up thinking that, believing that, and there are lots of people who say that, but if you know anything about the founders of the country and the religious divide to the day, yes, the, uh, many of them were Christian or deist, at least. They believed in a God, but they were not founding us as some sort of second Jerusalem. They are the ones who put into place the First Amendment uh, at, the, at the federal level. Now, at the state level, there were churches. At the federal level, there were not. But uh, the country and the government, they didn't create marriage. Marriage predated the government. Marriage predated the United States of America. When the country was founded and the Constitution was ratified, uh, Americans did not have to go back through and uh, reauthorize their private property or their marriages. They weren't given new marriage certificates or licenses or new deeds. Uh, everything was just ratified as is. The government did not create these institutions. The government did not create the institution of private property, and it didn't create the institution of marriage. Marriage predated it. Marriage was defined as between a man and a woman. My position has always been, if your state wanted to have gay marriage, uh, who am I to stop you if a majority of people in your state want it? And if a majority of people in my state don't, uh, you shouldn't be able to impose it on me. But through the democratic processes of the people, we should over time be allowed to evolve. And we should acknowledge and allow for differences of opinion on the issue, particularly when we're dealing with a 6,000-year-old institution. But the Supreme Court disagreed, and the Supreme Court decided to impose on everyone their definition. And there were people who said, well, if you don't want one, don't have one. It's not going to affect you. And as I have said repeatedly, even since before the Obergefell decision, you'll be made to care. Because there are a lot of people who bought into the idea, if you don't want one, you don't have to have one. It's not going to affect you. And then they came for people's businesses and shut those businesses down because they didn't want to participate. And so, yes, uh, it affected people 
who did not have themselves a gay marriage. We should be able to have gay marriage in the United States of America, not a theocracy, whether you or I like it or not, decided by the states, decided by the people, decided by the legislatures instead of imposed on us by federal fiat through the Supreme Court, and we should be able to put up with each other's differences as a democratic society. But now it's one size fits all. I mean, I just personally do not think that the Supreme Court uh, invented the institution of marriage, so it should not be allowed to define or change the institution of marriage. That should be up to the democratic processes of the people, and you and I can disagree and get along. The problem that the gay marriage decision exemplifies, and we've moved beyond that now, Obergefell's the law of the land, no one's going to change it. You don't have conservatives out there actively going around saying, oh, we need to reverse Obergefell, we need to amend the Constitution now to get rid of gay marriage. In fact, uh, who was it the other day? Uh, the the commentator, um, Dave Rubin, he's a political commentator, he's socially progressive, but sounds these days as a contrarian to the left so a lot of conservatives like him. He and his um, partner are having babies. Uh, he's gay. They've got uh, two surrogate women giving birth. And, and there were a lot of conservatives out there saying, hooray, good for you. Having kids is great. There were a lot of Christians out there saying, maybe, maybe not the best thing to do. But we should be able to agree to disagree and be able to get along well in a liberal society over these things. But we should also be grown up enough to recognize that after the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, uh, that uh, we're not going to reverse gay marriage in this country. Now, I've got uh, a number of friends of mine who are gay, uh, a couple of whom are married, a number of whom are not, and largely are not because of the tax penalty for getting married in the country, which I actually, I I continue to laugh at, um, that who knew the tax code would be the thing to keep a number of people from getting married. Um, nonetheless, that that's where I am, that if you want to do, if you want your state to be able to do it democratically, do it. I just never thought it was good for the Supreme court to impose its will. I kind of believe in federalism that if California wants gay marriage and abortion, let them have it. If your state doesn't let them have it, your state will probably have a population explosion over time. California will probably wind down over time with the abortion stuff, but let them have it. We live, in a, we live in a federal society of 50 semi-sovereign entities. The problem here is that the left truly, genuinely believes the right for a long time sought to impose its moral will on the country. And so now the left really does intend to impose its moral will on everyone. They took the, the fantasies and the stereotypes of the right, and they've now applied them as real. So they believe that the moral majority wanted to impose um, marriage on everyone and everyone's got to go to church and the like, which really wasn't true. And now they're going to do that themselves. They're going to take the caricature of the right and embrace it on the left, where you've got a lot of activists out there who demand now that we teach our kindergartners about sex. You have the transgender athletic discourse out there where you have people who um, they've got to be put into sports. And it shakes up the way we learn about society. And, you know, there's a problem there in and of itself. Um, We are human beings. We're, you know, King Philip came over from Great Spain. Do you all remember that? Uh, Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. King Philip came over from Great Spain. It's biology 101. Uh, we're in the animal kingdom. We're not in the plant kingdom or the, or the uh, single cellular organism kingdom. 
Uh, we're in the phylum chordata, which means we have spinal cords, essentially. We we have spinal cords. Uh, we have uh, bisymmetry. You divide, you split us down the middle from our spinal column, and the left and the right sides are identical. Uh, you We're in the class of mammals. Mammals have mammary glands, and this grams, and this this is where it gets interesting because with mammals, mammals have X, X and XY chromosomes. And that's how you determine the gender or the sex of the animal. And the female with the XX, their mammary glands produce milk, and the males do not. Uh, we're in the order of primates. Uh, primates have larger brains and eyesight. Uh, we're in the um, we're in the family of the hominids. The hominids look kind of human. They have heads and brains, and they can see in color and have eyesight, um, thumbs. And then we're into the genus and species Homo sapien. We're the only surviving species within the genus Homo. Now, when you get to mammals you get to the XX and the XY chromosomes. And then when you get into primates, you get into the definitive male and female uh, species where within the order of primates of which we are, the male and female take on different physical characteristics. That's why you can dig up a skeleton and determine based on sight, if, you, if you're an expert, whether it's a man or a woman, a male or a female. Interestingly enough, we also classify within the order of chordata, within the or within the phylum of chordata, uh, different names. So a female deer is a doe, a male deer is a buck, a male human is a man, a female human is a woman. You've got to shake all of this stuff up to get into transgenderism for biological, unless you're dealing with it as a theological level, uh, which is where we have the mythology and theology and uh, the angels with eyes all over them, the wings, the the chimera and the like. It, 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 transgenderism seems to be more religious and theological than biological. It falls outside the rules of biology. We would have to create a new, not just genus and species, but we would have to create a new class of animal by which to classify someone who's transgender based on what we know about biology. The left just wants us to shut up about it and impose their will and say, yeah, actually there is a subspecies of the homo sapiens who can change their sex. And this, by the way, five years ago, they said they couldn't change their sex, just their gender. And the way they wish to deal with this is to make you shut up, to censor and silence you. And there's a lot of polling data out there that this is starting to have negative effects on the left. That, in fact, uh, from critical race theory to transgenderism to uh, the gay rights activist community that wants to teach your kindergartners about sex to affirmative action to abortion, social conservatives are winning. More and more Americans are looking at the right thinking, you know, their order of society is actually what I believe. Their order of society is what I want to live in. It's not that they want to live in a theocracy. It's not that they want uh, my right-wing evangelical Christian values imposed on them. It's that they don't want to live in a society of fairy tale and fantasy land imposed by an authoritarian regime that wants to teach your kindergartners about sex and put boys on the girls' team and make you call them a girl or shut up, you bigot. And at the time that this is happening now, there is an elite within the Republican Party and outside the Republican Party that says, shut up about this stuff. Just shut up. 
we have bigger issues. We have global issues. Will Hurd, a Republican who left Congress, he was the only black Republican member of the House of Representatives for a time. There's a rather fawning profile from Tim Alberta in the Atlantic about him. And basically he says that we, we need to give up all these controversial cultural icky issues like critical race theory and transgender sports issues. And we need to focus on the big stuff like quantum mechanics and, and quantum computing and algorithms in China. We can multitask and do all, but the thing that these people are missing is that these cultural issues actually resonate with black and Hispanic voters. When you talk to black and Hispanic voters, they really don't want their children learning that they are always and forever victims of a white supremacist society. When you talk to black moms and Hispanic moms, they really don't want their kindergartner learning about sex at school. When you talk to black moms and Hispanic moms, you find out overwhelmingly they actually do support restrictions on abortion, if not outright bans. And when you talk to black moms and Hispanic moms, overwhelmingly, they do not like socialism, they do not like defunding the police, and they do not like the imposition of what they consider immorality on their family, and they do not like the censorship of the left on these issues. And they do not like the idea that boys could compete with their girls on a girls' team and have a competitive advantage. Okay, I, I want to state something that should be obvious that may not be obvious for people. I like a high thread count sheet, but if the threads are crap, the sheet's going to be crap no matter how many uh, threads you need. It just, it, it's, it's amazing how people want to highlight that. And the reason I highlight this is because Bolin Branch makes high quality sheets and they're not a bajillion, majillion thread count either. But their threads are super high quality. They use 100% organic cotton threads. They give super softness. You get a better night's sleep. They're not just buttery, soft, breathable, impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. I can attest to this. Every time you wash them, they just seem to get a little softer. And they hold up so well over the long term. You know, I'm on... Gosh, maybe my second set of Bull and Branch sheets in, in a decade. So they just hold up so well. They're a quality product, and they give you such a good night's sleep. Oh, my gosh. They're so fantastic. I really do love these sheets, and I love Bull and Branch. You can, too. They are fantastic. They're so luxurious. Three U.S. presidents sleep under Bull and Branch sheets. So you can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code ERIC at BollandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L. A-N-D-Branch.com. The promo code is Eric. Get a good night's sleep under Bull and Branch Sheets. One more point on this issue. Welcome back, by the way. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. One more point for you on this. The left and a, a, a large number of elite in the Republican Party have been saying, you know, if the Supreme Court throws out Roe v. Wade in, in the Dobbs case. It's going to be bad for the GOP. I don't actually think that's the case. And th this is the, the way they always, always couch this stuff is you may be right, but it's going to hurt you politically. Sometimes, you know, you have to do the right thing. And this is the lesson that, that we should learn from the left. The left does stuff. I mean, like right now, look at Joe Biden trying to get rid of Title 42. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden is... Tell the left selling him, look, this is going to hurt us politically. Title 42, if you weren't here in the first hour, that requires that illegal immigrants stay in Mexico. They can't come across the border. And we have to, we get to send them back not e without a deportation hearing. And the left saying, this is going to hurt us. And Joe Biden's like, well, we should do it anyway. 
because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you have to do the right thing. But largely what's happening in the country right now is so much of the left, their advance culturally depends on making other people be quiet. And there's a real visceral reaction within the American public to that level of censorship. You can disagree on the issue. You can, perfectly frankly, you can disagree. You may, in fact, think that it's fine to have a boy uh, go through multiple years of hormone suppressants and then be able to compete with a girl. You, 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 can, you can take that position. I may disagree with you, but it's in a society, we should be able to have that conversation. What the left says is we're not allowed to have those conversations anymore. And I actually suspect if you were to dig into the polling, you would find that that's the reason. Because I suspect there are actually a lot more Americans out there uh, who disagree with me on this issue. I suspect there are a lot of Americans out there who think, you know, if, if they take hormone suppressants, they've, they've done it at an early age, uh, they've taken these suppressants, yeah, let them compete against the girls. They think they're girls. We should be kind in the name of compassion. And that's fine. We can have that conversation. But the left doesn't want you to have that conversation. And what I find most troubling is there's this contingent of people in the Republican Party at the upper echelons of the Republican Party who also do not want you to have this conversation. And what it just just dazzles and amazes and alarms me here is that poll after poll after poll shows the Republicans are winning on these issues. And as more and more polling shows the Republicans are winning with non-white voters on these cultural issues, the reaction from a lot of people in the Republican elite is, oh, stop talking about those issues. Do not talk about those issues. Stop it. Stop it, you bigots. But we're winning with those issues. Now, there's a corollary here. There will be some who overplay their hand. And the left makes it very hard to distinguish between the people of con who have concerns of conscience and the people who really are terrible people. And we should be able to distinguish between them on our own side and police our own side on that. There will be people who overplay their hand. I don't doubt there really are people who want to reverse the Obergefell decision. I, I don't doubt. I think they're a very small minority of people, but there will certainly be some, and there will be some who show no compassion and no empathy whatsoever. I just got to think if you're a dude and, and you're willing to, to chop off your reproductive organs and go through surgery because you really think you're, you're a woman, I may think there's something wrong with you, but I should at least show some compassion for what you're going through. And I, I should at least be willing to show you some empathy uh, in the same way that I would hope others would show empathy for me if I was going through something. may not agree with your decision there, but we don't have to be terrible people to each other. But we shouldn't also just be silent on these issues when they're working for the GOP and conservatives. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. If you'd like to be on the program, there is a new book out, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Uh, the Georgia November election and then that runoff for the United States Senate um, kind of put uh, my home state now at the center of the political universe for the United States, particularly for 2022. I mean, Raphael Warnock, now senator, uh, who ran and filled the term of the late Johnny Isaacson, is up for re-election. Uh, he beat Kelly Leffler in that runoff. And now the whole world has descended upon Georgia. And if you flip that seat, the Republicans could take back the Senate. 
But in that dynamic and the way it works, you suddenly had a Republican civil war break out nationally. And it really, the spark that lit that Republican civil war happened in Georgia. It just fascinating dynamics. Uh, on top of that, you've got Stacey Abrams now running again in 2022. You've got Republican voting rights reforms around the nation. And in the center of it all, is a journalist who's a friend of mine, Greg Bluestein, with this book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple, Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power, and he is joining me by phone. Greg, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, the amount of uh, inside stories in your book, I'm I'm fascinated by them. Some of them I had heard along the way, uh, particularly about, for example, Leffler and Purdue not really being down on the stolen election stuff and worried about uh, the vote suppress voter suppression from their own side. Uh, it just it, all of these dynamics. So if you would, just to begin, kind of give people an overview of this. Yeah, I mean, really, it's kind of a 350-page preview of what we're ever going to see in November 2022 with Georgia once again becoming uh, the spotlight, the, the premier attraction in the in the presidential election, uh, in, in the in the midterms, I should say. Um, but what we're really looking at is um, it's a three-part book. The first part kind of sets the stage for how Georgia became so competitive. Um, the second part drills down deep into the presidential campaign in November 2020 election in Georgia. And the third part is all about the Senate runoffs and how they became the most expensive, uh, the wildest, the most epic elections that I think any of us have ever seen in Georgia, at least, with the nine-week runoffs that decided to control the U.S. Senate. Now, let's start at the beginning, because I think there are lessons here nationally for, for anyone listening in any part of the country. Uh, demographically, the state has changed, uh, and people used to talk about demography as destiny. Now, however, the Republicans seem to be making, in some parts of the country, inroads with Hispanic voters. But in Georgia, I remember 2006, uh, you had the massive, massive Democratic wave that hit everywhere except Georgia. And for a long time, Republicans in Georgia thought, well, they were immune to this. The Republican Party was going to be dominant. But as you get further and further away from that, uh, the party looks more and more nervous and also seems to be uh, at an institutional level less and less grounded in operations in the state. Yeah, and for a long time, Democrats here in Georgia ran as Republican light, right? They ran as NRA Democrats. They, right. they, they, you know, they had different approaches than Republicans, but for the most part, their agendas could be somewhat similar. Um, whereas it started to change in 2018 with Stacey Abrams and other Democrats who started embracing more liberal issues. Um, but at the same time, knowing that embracing those liberal issues would, would alienate them, would, would ostracize them even further from conservative voters. So with the, the urban areas of the state, so one of the things that struck me, and I remember we had this conversation back in 2018, uh, that a lot of reporters were coming into the state from out of state, fascinated by the dynamics. And we had that massive hurricane blow through South Georgia a couple of weeks before the election. Abrams was down there, made the statement about, well, you know, you didn't have to work on the farm now. You go up to Atlanta and get a service industry job or some such. And you were one of the very few reporters, because you were on the ground in Georgia, who recognized that that might not have been a helpful statement from her. Well, everyone else is really focused on just this urban metro dynamic. Now, I have a lot of listeners who aren't in Georgia now. If you could, from your vantage point, kind of explain what this urban, suburban, ex-urban, rural dynamic is that exists now in the state. Yeah, that's a great point because it's not – there used to be the saying there's two Georgias. Now there's more like four Georgias. There's urban, suburban, ex-urban, uh, and rural. 
Um, and Republican strategy in Georgia, especially with Governor Kemp in 2018, was to wing as many conservative votes as they possibly could out of rural Georgia. So counties that Donald Trump won by with 80, 85% of the vote, Brian Kemp won some of these counties with 92% of the vote. Um, and that's why Stacey Abrams' comments were so damaging. I was actually with Kemp in rural Georgia um, when that news broke of, of Stacey's comments, and um, in, it was in Statesboro. And she immediately corrected herself. You know, we, we, Before her sentence was even finished, she kind of went back and corrected herself. But it didn't matter because Brian Kemp had that clip Republicans had that clip, which made her seem, um, you know, uh, made it, it made it seem like she didn't understand what rural Georgia was all about, what what rural, people in rural parts of the state, with the agricultural industry, which is the biggest industry in Georgia by far, um, that, that it wasn't important. It seemed like she was downplaying it. And Governor Kemp used that, um, uh, the, the, the final stretch of the campaign, at every stop he could. Yeah, okay, so now fast forward. We, we get into the election. Um, I know you and I have a lot of the same frustrations about how uh, the mythology of 2020 happened and, and a lot of information that just simply wasn't true that to this day continues to be repeated. Uh, but behind closed doors, a lot of the candidates who publicly talk about the stolen election did not really seem to buy into the idea of the stolen election. Uh, their private words and their public words were different. And I know you capture some of this dynamic in the book. And if you want to talk about that, I, I'm I'm actually interested in hearing you tell these stories. Yeah, because that's exactly what happened. The candidates felt like they, they were basically hostages of Donald Trump that they were bound by him to keep on, you know, the goalposts kept on moving and they had to move with it. Um, they had little other choice in their view. Um, you know, Kelly Leffler never got to run the campaign she wanted to run. Um, yeah. You know, when Governor Kemp picked her to fill a vacant U.S. Senate seat, she was supposed to be somewhat more moderate, you know, still a Trump supporter, but someone who could appeal to more moderate college-educated um, white women voters who were, who were leaving the GOP in droves. And, and the thinking at the time was that Governor Kemp already had the pro-Trump bases covered between him and between other conservative Republicans in the state, and that she could, um, she could reach out to a new, a new segment of the population that had left the GOP. But instead, facing a primary challenge of Doug Collins, essentially a primary challenge, a conservative congressman, um, you know, forced her further to the right. And then during the runoffs, her and David Perdue um, basically kept on trying to anticipate what, got, what President Trump's next move was and try to head him off. So they backed the Texas lawsuit to invalidate millions of Georgia votes. Um, they called for um, $2,000 stimulus paychecks uh, for coronavirus relief, even though they had earlier said, no, that's way too much. And they both called for Brad Raffensperger's resignation. And then by the end of the campaign, both of them said that they would um, joined the effort to block the Electoral College certification on January 6th at Congress. So these were steps that, you know, neither, neither of them would ever anticipate taking um, in early November. But by January 6th, January 5th, they were seen as, um, you know, must-dos in order to keep Trump's support. Well, and, and I, I, it seems like I, I recall one of the anecdotes from the story um, about the Trump campaign coming into Georgia and the candidates deeply worried that all of the stolen election rhetoric was going to actually suppress their own votes and Republicans may not turn out, which turns out to be prophetic as well, because that is kind of what happened. Yeah. You know, one of the, the tidbits I learned in reporting this book was that Kelly Leffler even had a voter database, a voter file that she called with tens of thousands of conservative voters on it. These are reliable Republican voters who had voted for Governor Kemp, 
who voted for President Trump in the last election, and she had called them GOP not voting because they felt like no matter what they would do, they couldn't get these voters to go back out of the polls because they were so entranced by these lies about widespread election fraud. They, they were believing it. And look, it shot the, their own candidates in the foot. It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock eked by in that runoff. Well, I remember talking to one of the, the top left or people on the day of that runoff election uh, towards the evening, and he was saying that they had modeled as conservatively as they could because they knew some voters would stay home thinking that uh, the race had been stolen. And even their conservative estimates uh, were too liberal and far more people were staying home than they ever thought of. That whole North Georgia region uh, seemed to, to just not turn up and vote. Yeah, um, and, and it was not for lack of trying, right? I mean, right. they saw this coming. Those candidates, David Perdue and particularly Kelly Leffler, were, were out there nonstop appealing, especially to that to that northern Georgia region, home to so many of those conservative voters who were skeptical because of all the lies about election fraud. They were skeptical of going to the polls. And I'll never forget, um, Donald Trump held a rally um, in, in North Georgia right before um, the runoff election. And it was about 90 minutes, and he only spoke about two or three minutes about the candidates. Um, and, the, and the candidates, you know, their, their aides basically said, at least we got two minutes. They were happy just to get those two or three minutes um, because Donald Trump was so focused on his own grievances and not at that point focused on helping the runoff candidates nearly to the point they wanted. So now you fast forward to 2022, you've got Abrams and Kip again. Uh, one of the, the dynamics that I, I interpret from the exit polling and the public opinion polling from 2018 is that there was a core of suburban voters, particularly women, who thought that that Brian Kemp was Donald Trump's guy. And they voted for Abrams because of that. But that in the last four years, he has seemed to clearly show and, and, and Trump's own words have shown that Kemp is not his guy and that yeah. that might help him recover some in the suburbs. It's going to be really fascinating to see if that's the case, because certainly, you know, with the fact that Donald Trump's not going to be on the ballot, um, you know, will will some of those um, formerly Republican women who fled the party after 2016, will they come back into the GOP fold or, you know, are the suburbs going to go even bluer or remain just as blue as they are? Because Gwinnett County and Cobb County are former Republican fortresses that flipped over blue for the first time since Jimmy Carter era in 2016 and got even bluer in 2020. So we'll see if, if that's the case. Um, but uh, Brian Kemp is targeting them right now. He is appealing to them. But so is Stacey Abrams with her talk about expanding Medicaid. She's, she's veered from um, more divisive issues in the early goings of her campaign and talked about expanding Medicaid, which polls show you know, has, has more widespread support than some other issues that she tackled in her 2018 campaign. For people who are listening outside the state who are fascinated by these dynamics, because it is going to be such a swing state for 2022, uh, what are you looking at moving forward in the state that, that people should be able to pay attention to? I think Donald Trump, I think Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's influence in the nation. Uh, and it's not just because of the sheer number of candidates he's endorsed at seven, but it's because of who he's endorsed. He's, he's not picked many easy wins. He's, he's picked a lot of yeah. um, challengers. Uh, like like David Perdue going against Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp has a, a hefty lead in the polls right now. And some of these down-ballot contenders, he's also endorsed um, very uh, obscure candidates for races like insurance commissioner and attorney general. So the Trump factor is going to play big. But also, what advantage does someone like Stacey Abrams have? Um, and, and to a degree, Raphael Warnock, what advantage do they have 
by avoiding infighting and watching Republicans feuding. Does that come back to haunt Republicans? We just don't know. Right now, it's conventional wisdom that Republicans will be hurt by this. But, you know, in October, it might just be a distant memory. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we will see. Fascinating time to be alive in Georgia politics in particular. It is. Uh, the book is called Flipped. Uh, if you want it, if you text the word Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777, I'll send you back a link uh, to Amazon so you can click and order the book. Fascinating read. Greg, listen, uh, your reporting is always fascinating in Georgia, and I appreciate you being able to stop by to talk about the book. Anytime, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. The, again, the book is flipped. If you text the word Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to the number 33777, it's a fascinating read on politics in general because uh, the, one of the dynamics in Georgia is that it has been a reliably Republican state and got more so in the early 2000s, and it has just dramatically changed. And a lot of that, interestingly enough, has to do with Republican governors attracting Fortune 500 companies to Georgia, who instead of hiring Georgians, moved their existing employees down to Georgia, and they didn't change the way they voted, Democrat. Um, and it's just completely shaken up Georgia politics, uh, it, all the people moving into the state. Now, one of the companies out there that is fighting for the conservative movement in Georgia and around the country uh, is Patriot Mobile. They contribute a portion of their profits to the conservative cause, the conservative movement. And they need you as a customer in order to be able to grow their profits, in order to grow the amount of money they donate to the conservative cause. And you don't have to worry about sacrificing quality to do the right thing. You're going to get great quality service. They use the same towers everybody else uses. And they give you great discounts for coming on board. Whether you're a veteran, a first responder, an NRA member, a teacher, you got multiple lines because you got a bunch of kids who need cell phones, Patriot Mobile can help you. And you can roll your existing number over to them if you want. You get free activation with my name by going to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Patriotmobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You can also call them. 972-PATRIOT is the phone number. 972-PATRIOT. They got 100% U.S.-based customer service. And again, they fight for the conservative movement. They are explicitly the management of this company of whom I know them. They are Christian and conservative. They're not just a company posing to get your money. They actually are Christian conservatives. I know these guys. I know the guy who came up with the idea for the company. They're good, solid conservative people. They want you on board and together we can fight for the conservative cause across the country. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. Some of you out there listening right now, a small number of you know my friend Andrew Walker. For the first time in a very long time, I, I have. <laughs> he texted me something and I laughed so hard I snorted coffee out my nose. <laughs> no, I can't tell you what it was. Oh my gosh. I haven't done that. Wow. <laughs> I nearly choked. Uh, and in the event, we need to move on because these are things I cannot discuss on radio. <laughs> okay. All right. There's good news. Let's say you're working at a job and your job, you don't like it anymore. I'm not talking to Charlie and Philip. They're stuck. The rest of you, however, job openings are near record highs. There's been a slight uptick in workers quitting, uh, showing the confidence of finding new jobs. Available jobs fell slightly, 
for the second consecutive month in February after touching a record high late last month, a sign employers are able to fill open positions as the pandemic eases. Job openings are easing as the number of new coronavirus cases continues to fall, potentially freeing up more people to rejoin the workforce. Rising inflation and economic uncertainty surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine are also factors incentivizing people to return to work. The Labor Department reported seasonally adjusted 11.3 million job openings in February, a modest decrease from the previous month's level, slightly below the record set in December, but still really high. In other words, you can get a new job if you want one. More likely than not, if you hate your current job, employers are not doing a lot of layoffs right now because they need every worker they can. And this, by the way, it's not just the hospitality and service industry. It's not just restaurants and retail, although they're desperate. It's a lot of uh, white-collar job situations as well. Blue-collar and white-collar job situations across the board need workers right now. This is a really good time for you as an employee if you're in a negotiating position. Now, I got to tell you, I finally had to get an agent in radio, and I love my agent. Rush Limbaugh actually picked my agent for me because I didn't know anybody. And so he he got me my agent, uh, and I'm glad because I just I'm a people pleaser. I know, I know. I just I hate to tell people no, and I get myself in all sorts of terrible positions because I tell people yes and agree to do stuff I shouldn't agree to. But I just don't like to tell people no. It is a personality flaw, and it actually is a flaw. And I've gotten better about it. But this is why I have Charlie to tell people no. But if you're the sort of person and you want to go out and wheel and deal yourself and try to get yourself a pay raise or a new job, now is the time for you to do that because no no employer wants to lose employees right now. And there are lots of people who are looking to hire employees right now. And so you can potentially find yourself a really good job. Uh, but my gosh, um, you got to have the personality to wheel and deal like that. And I know I don't, which is why I have Charlie, who he just loves to tell people no. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building. You want to build a building. Reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can so spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.